Good morning, folks. Lovely to be with you again. Uh, We're going to turn and read from verse 13 of James chapter 1. But before we do that, does anybody remember how many verses there are in the book of James? 108. 108. And how many commands are there in those 108 verses? There's 54. So there's one kind of instruction in every two verses. It's a really practical book, which is wonderful. So let's read it. Uh, We're going to pick up from verse 13. And we looked at the first part of the reading last Sunday. James writes, When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me, for God cannot be tempted by evil. Nor does he tempt anyone, but each one is tempted when by his own evil desires he is dragged away and enticed. Then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. Do not be deceived, my dear brothers. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of heavenly lights. It does not change like shifting shadows. He chose to give us birth through the word of truth that we might be a kind of first fruits of all he created. Let's just pray for a moment. Father, we thank you so much for giving us your precious word. And we just delight to read it, most especially when we can understand it. But often, O Lord, we're puzzled, not altogether sure what it means. But we thank you that you've sent your Holy Spirit to lead us into all truth. And we ask this morning that in a very simple way you'd break down your word into small pieces, that we might learn something that would really help and encourage us and be a blessing to us and to help us to keep going on our journey with you. So give us the ability to concentrate, Lord, and uh, grant that the Spirit will help us to grab hold of this truth. In Jesus' beautiful name we pray. Amen. Mm. Well, uh, James starts off in the section that we're going to look at uh, by saying something interesting. He says, don't be deceived, my dear brothers. Now, why do you think he said, don't be deceived? I think when you read something like that is because there is the danger that people were being deceived. And so he's saying to us this morning, just don't be deceived. Grab hold of this uh, truth. Now, we've just looked last Sunday at verse 13, and it says, When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. Now, one of the tricks that the enemy uses is he tries to convince us that our father is holding out on us. Our father kind of knows what we're going through, but he doesn't really care, so he just lets us get on with it. And he doesn't really care because he doesn't really love us. That's the trick that the enemy uses. When Satan approached Eve in the Garden of Eden, he suggested that God didn't really love her. If God loved you, he would let you eat from the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But he doesn't want you to eat of that fruit because then you'd be like him. So God's kind of holding out on you. And when Satan came and tempted Jesus, 
the first of the temptations in the wilderness, he was kind of, he was kind of saying to him, listen, if your father loved you, why are you hungry? Turn these stones into bread. So he likes to try to drop a seed thought into our minds that God is good, but not good all the time. He's only good some of the time. Now when temptation and tragedy comes, when tragedy comes to those we love, when difficulties darken our days, when we look around and see so much pain, injustice and suffering in our world, we're confused. And if we're very honest, there have been days when we've maybe not articulated the question, but we've thought about it. Is God good? When we see people going through impossible situations, we wonder, does does God care? It's almost impossible to walk with God if we question his goodness. Because such questioning leads us to unbelief. And yet understanding the goodness of God is a great help when we're faced with temptation. We're always faced with temptation. If God is good, then we need have no fear that he's going to pull a fast one on us. Or play a joke with us. Or place a great big banana skin just in front of us on Monday morning. God isn't like that. Because God is good. And if God is good, then we need have no fear that he'll ever forget us. Or turn his back upon us. Or withdraw his hand from us. Someone has said that it's better to be hungry in the will of God than full outside the will of God. And you know, if we start to doubt God's goodness, then we shall find in a very strange way Satan's temptations to be really rather attractive. Do you remember Moses warned the children of Israel when they were in the wilderness? He said, when they get into the promised land and you're enjoying the blessings of the promise land, don't forget God. But what did they do when they got into the promised land? They began to forget God. And it seems to me that some of the readers of this letter were in danger of forgetting the goodness of God. Why? Because they were having a really tough time. So he says in verse 16, don't be deceived, my dear brothers. Don't be deceived. Now it's really interesting. He's, he's dealt with temptation and now he mo- moves on to talk about gifts. Now, we, we know a little bit about gifts, don't we? Because we like to give gifts. And he says in verse 17, every good and perfect gift comes from above. And that's literally uh, every good giving and every perfect gift. Every good giving and every perfect gift. Now, the truth is that most of us enjoy giving gifts. Yeah, we like receiving gifts, but we we enjoy giving gifts to those we love. Isn't that right? And Matthew says, if you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? Now, somebody once said that when it comes to gifts, there's three kinds of gifts. There's uh, grudge gifts. I have to, you know. 
Aunt Mabel always gives me something. I have to give her something. I don't really want to. And then there's duty gifts. I ought to give. Hmm. I ought to give. And then there's thanksgiving. I want to give. Three different kinds of gifts. Now, some gifts are given with sincerity and others are not. I did hear of a father who was quite successful in business and he lavished gadgets on his children. Tablets and computers and, and just anything they wanted he gave, it, gave them. And he spent most of his time either working or playing golf. And that wasn't really very kind at all because what his children needed was him. They didn't need all of the things. And things are a poor substitute for the giving of ourselves. So our giving may be good, but it's limited. When Anne and I got married, we we received six electric carving knives, which was wonderful. The only thing was we were at Bible college. We didn't have any money to buy the meat. But it was very useful because when our friends were getting married, guess what we gave them? <laughs> Six carving knives. And if uh, uh, talking about the gifts that we give, you might remember the gifts that you got last Christmas. Well, what about the Christmas before? Do you remember those gifts? I don't. I can't even remember what I got for this Christmas. So our gifts are, are good, but they're not that good. But what about God's gifts? Well, every good and perfect gift is from above. And the, the sense of the words is that the, the gifts that God gives can't be bettered. And look at the two words that he uses. He says every good and perfect gift is from above. The gifts that God gives are both good and perfect. Now that word perfect is interesting. It's interesting to follow it through the scriptures because it's often used to describe um, excuse me, uh, the character, nature, and activity of God. So let's just pick up on some of the instances where that word perfect is used. And again, bearing in mind that it's referring to the gifts that God gives. Let me give you some examples. Deuteronomy chapter 32 verse 4a says, He, that's God, is the rock. His works are perfect and all his ways are just. So God's works are all perfect. Perfect. This is one of the great distinguishing marks between something that we humans do and something God does. You see, what we do might look good on the surface. Indeed, the work of a master craftsman might look perfect. But if you examine it closely, you'll see there are flaws and failures. And in a sense, that's an exposition of the whole of human nature. The closer you examine anything that's made by man, the more imperfect you see it to be. But if you examine God's handiwork, you'll see it's absolutely perfect. Now let me give you an illustration of that. I I, I don't know if you probably have a sewing needle at home. And probably your sewing needle is a really sharp point and it looks pretty good. It's a triumph of manufacturing. But if you put it under a microscope, immediately see you see that the surface is not shiny and smooth, but pitted and scarred. And the sharp point, when you look at it really closely under great magnification, is just a stump. And it's not really very sharp at all, a jagged stump. But if you look, on the other hand, at a flower and stop and admire it, it looks beautiful. But if you put it under a microscope, 
and take a closer look, the perfection you saw in passing is nothing compared to the perfection you see uh, when it's looked at really closely. A miniature world of design and delicacy revealed in all its amazing intricacy. There's the principle, the closer you examine any work of God, the more you will see it to be perfect. So God's work of creation is perfect. But God's work of recreation is equally perfect. God's work of rescuing us is perfect. I wonder have you read that amazing prophecy about Jesus in Isaiah 53 after the suffering of his soul he will see the light of life and be satisfied after the suffering of his soul he will see the light of life and be satisfied there will come a moment when the Lord will look back and see all that he has done and he shall be satisfied our God will be completely satisfied for all his works are perfect. Now I don't know about you, but I look in the mirror. And I hold my stomach in when I do that. Uh, But you know something? I think God's got an awful lot more work to do. But the wonderful thing is that when God the Father looks at us, what does he see? He sees the very goodness of Jesus. It is wonderful. His salvation is perfect. It can't be bettered. His works are wonderful. They're perfect. And then we read that his ways are perfect. As for God, his way is perfect. David wrote these words when he'd been through a time of great testing and trial. Darkness and difficulties. Misunderstanding and misery. Saul had chased him from place to place, hounding him. And David had been able to, had David been able to choose his way, he would have surely chosen to go another way. And isn't that the same for us too? If God had given us a choice, there'd be things that we would have wanted to avoid. Isn't that absolutely right? He wouldn't have chosen to go the way of Saul's anger against him and yet now he looks back on it all and he says in effect I've gone through the valley of the shadow through fire and through deep waters through the testing and now I can see that all of these things have played a part in maturing my life amazing that he could look back and say that and I think a day will come when you and I will look back And the things that have hurt us and caused us such difficulty, we'll be able to say, thank you God, because we'll be able to see what he's done with those things in our lives. So when circumstances don't work out quite as well as we'd like them to, it's good to remind ourselves that his ways are perfect. And I think of uh, the, the, the clay. He's the potter and we are the clay. And the clay sometimes is hard and the pot my twin brother's a potter so I know this and he works with his fingers to make the clay soft so that he can shape and make it into the article that he chooses and, and we're like that God brings pressure to bear in our life to shape us and to make us into the people that he wants to be his ways are perfect 
And then we read the word perfect in connection with God's will. Romans 12. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is. His good, pleasing, and perfect will. So God has a perfect will. Now I have to say that I don't often understand what God is doing. But then I don't think Paul did. Paul had a thorn in the flesh. Some people say that it was his mother-in-law. I don't think he was married. (laughs) I don't think so. But whatever it was, it was really painful because three times God asked him. He asked God to take it away and God said no. And I think that we're not told what the thorn is because a thorn can be lots of different things. And I think we each have a thorn. Or maybe more than one to keep us trusting in God. Johnny Erickson uh, said something that my wife picked up this week online. And she said this, that sometimes God permits what he hates to accomplish what he loves. Sometimes God permits what he hates to accomplish what he loves. And sometimes he permits what he hates in our lives to accomplish what he loves in our lives. What a comfort it is to know that God's will is perfect. He always acts in concert with his character. I came across a little poem when I was at college many years ago. I'm going to read it to you, at least part of it. It says, when God wants to drill a man and thrill a man and skill a man, when God wants to mold a man to play the noblest part, when he yearns with all his heart to create so great and bold a man that all the world shall be amazed, watch his methods, watch his ways, how he ruthlessly perfects, whom he royally elects, how he hammers him and hurts him, and with mighty blows converts him into trial shapes of clay, which only God understands. While his tortured heart is crying, and he lifts beseeching hands, how he bends but never breaks, when his good he undertakes, how he uses whom he chooses, and with every purpose fuses him, by every act induces him to try his splendor out, God knows what he's about. And that's the truth, isn't it? We don't understand, but God always knows what he's about. These gifts are good and perfect. His works are perfect. His ways are perfect. His will is perfect. And then we read that his word is perfect. Psalm 19 verse 7. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The Bible is never out of date. It's never out of touch. It's God's perfect word. It's where we have to start if we want to know God. Jim Packer, the theologian, said to defer to God's word is an act of faith. Any querying or editing of it on our own initiative is an exhibition of unbelief. God's word is perfect. So if you take his works, his ways, his will and his word and if you wrap them all up together you can summarize them like this. Nothing good comes except from God and nothing except good comes from God. I think that's worth repeating so I'm going to say it again. Nothing good comes except from God and nothing except good comes from God. 
And isn't it so interesting that James, having talked about temptation, moves on to talk about God's goodness, side by side. How wonderful is that? Well, when we think further about it in verse 17, we learn that God doesn't change. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of heaven, the heavenly lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. So here we're being told that God is good, and then we're being told that God doesn't change. I think that is absolutely wonderful to know that God doesn't change. You see, we live in a world of constant change, don't we? Our bodies are inescapable testimony of that. When you get a bit older, everything heads south, isn't that right? That's true, yeah, we can testify to that. And when you're young and you you, you pinch a little bit of skin, it snaps back into place really quickly. You get a bit older and you pinch the skin and it takes a minute or two. And then when you get to my age and you do it, uh, well, we're best not to try it at my age, I think, because it takes too long uh, to slip back into place. Uh, The world is constantly changing and we are constantly changing, but the wonderful thing is this that God doesn't change A.W. Pink said God cannot change for the better because he's perfect and being perfect he can never be anything less than perfect I I I love God's word to us in Malachi he says I the Lord do not change I think that's a wonderful thing just imagine what it would be like if God was like us Maybe getting up one morning out of the wrong side of the bed. Or eating his meal too quickly and getting indigestion and being in bad form. Imagine what that would be like. Do you ever get that Monday morning feeling? Yeah? God doesn't. Do you ever get a jump to a wrong conclusion? I remember one time when uh, in a church I served in England for eight years uh, an elder and a deacon were muttering away in a corner and I was utterly convinced they were talking about me they weren't actually but I was convinced they were ever jumped to a wrong conclusion? oh, God doesn't do you ever get grumpy? yeah, some of you probably do looking at you (laughs) Yeah. do you ever tell lies? well, half-truths most of us do Aren't we glad God doesn't change? Now, James talks about God not changing like shifting shadows. What's that all about? Well, the light of the sun seems to change as the earth rotates when the sun is high. It's generally the warmest part of the day. And whilst it's true that life's shadows are never caused by God's turning, they may be caused by our turning. Now let me explain that to you. Just imagine there's a street lamp like the picture on the, on the, on the screen. And if you stand directly underneath that lamp and the light is shining down, you, you, you're standing just in a little round shadow of, of, of darkness because you make a shadow so some of us maybe, maybe might be bigger shadow than others but we're standing right under the lamp with the light shining and we've got this little circle of shadow that we're standing in but if you step away a small step from the lamp what happens? the shadow gets bigger doesn't it? and if you take another step away the shadow is even bigger again 
And if you take a few more steps, you're out of the light altogether. If shadows come between us and the Father, the Father does not cause them, because he is an unchanging God. If there are shadows in our lives, it is because we have moved a wee bit. We've maybe stepped away from being right under the light of God's revealed will. We mustn't forget God's goodness, especially when temptations come or difficult circumstances ambush us. We just keep trusting. I heard a lovely story of an old music teacher who was asked the question, what's the good news today? And he thought for a moment, and without saying anything, he walked across the room and he picked up a tuning fork. You know what a tuning fork is? And he struck it. And as the note sounded, he said, that's an A. That's an A today. It was an A 10,000 years ago. And it'll be an A 10,000 years from now. The soprano upstairs is singing off key. The tenor across the hall is out of tune. And then he struck the, the tuning fork again. And he said, that's an A, my friend. And that's a good news. You see, there are some things that don't change. And God doesn't change. The good news for today and for all eternity is this. That God is infinitely good. He's infinitely good. And it's wonderful for us to know that. He has never... He has never and never will... Withdraw his hand of goodness from us. And he's never been more good, if I can use that expression, to us than he has been to us today. I sometimes wonder if God's grace were to be removed. I think we'd all be incinerated like that. Because he is so utterly holy. And, and we're not, are we? Well, that brings us to God's grace. Our gifts, not, not great. God's gifts, always good. Perfect. And then God doesn't change. And it says in verse 18, He chose to give us birth through the word of truth that we might be a kind of first fruits of all he created. I just love that first phrase, God chose to give us birth. I have a twin brother. I've told you that before he's very good looking we're very alike and um, he doesn't know Jesus and I don't know why and I pray for him every day I was at school a boarding school 160 other kids were there at school and as far as I knew there was I wasn't a Christian at school I came to, to faith when I was 22 and a bit but after I left school and after I came to faith, I discovered there was one other fellow who left school and had come to faith. But that's the only one I know of. And I sit there and think, why me, Lord? And I don't have an answer. I had an old farmer in my, the church I served in England. And, uh, oh, he was a tough old boy. He owned some land that was taken away during the war to create an airfield. He was a farmer, but he was left with part of his land, and he was as 
as tough as old boots. In fact, uh, the house that he had didn't have electricity, and he had one uh, tap with cold running water, and he just lived like that, and that was right up into the 90s. Uh, I, I buried him. In fact, I, I, I read the scriptures to him as he went into heaven. But I, he used, I used to go and see him, and he was blind. And uh, he, was a, he was a great old guy. He, in the war, he was in part of the home guard, and he hated it. So he used to send a message that my cow, cow is calving. And he had one cow that calved, I think it was 12 times in 12 months. Anyway, I can remember sitting with him. He was just, uh, he was blind and, and very incapacitated. He'd fallen into the fire and been badly burned. But he sat there blind and I had to clear a space to sit down uh, on, a, on a seat because his house was just you've never been into a house like it but, but I remember him sitting there saying you know he said I, I sit here and I think that God in his kindness has reached out and touched me and then I said why God and I don't have an answer and I'm just lost in the wonder of it all that God should reach out and touch me. And I thought that was wonderful. Because, and I said to him, I just wish all of the folks in, in our church family were enthralled with a sense of wonder that God has reached out and touched us. It is absolutely marvelous. Now, when God chose us, he chose to give us the new birth through his word. And by giving us the new birth, he declared that he cannot accept the old birth. You with me? Giving us the new birth, he can't accept the old birth. That's why we need to be born again. And what happens when we're born again? When we are born again, the Spirit of Christ comes to live within us. So, in our lives, there is the old us and the new us many years ago my twin brother and I were outside my mother's house we were doing putting something into a car and a little boy drove past with his father and this little boy was in my Sunday school class and when he got home he said to his mum mum I saw Mr. Mike Healy and the other Mr. Mike Healy he saw the two of us my twin brother and I but had he been able to see me with spiritual eyes he would have seen the old Mr. Mike Healy and the new Mr. Mike Healy that's what happens when the spirit of God comes to live within us now a Sunday school child explained it in very simple terms and he said listen there's two men who live in my heart one's called Adam that's the old me and Jesus and when temptation knocks at the door somebody has to answer it and if I go and answer the door I sin but if I send Jesus to answer the door the temptation goes away he always wins and of course this new nature must be fed the word of God daily that it might be strong to fight the battle 
Just as the Holy Spirit uses the word of God to give us spiritual birth, he uses the word of God to give us spiritual strength. Now just imagine that in your heart there are two tug-of-war teams. Okay? There's the new one representing this new nature that God has given us. God's nature, the divine nature. And the other one is the old nature. Now, there's this constant battle going on all the time. And Paul knew that. He said, the very thing that I want to do is the thing that I don't do. And the thing that I don't want to do is I keep on doing. And uh, in Galatians chapter 5, it says there's a war going on within us. And we're being pulled in both directions. This is, this is a present struggle that we all face. Now the trick is to understand that when this tug of war is going on, is if we begin to feed the old nature, it becomes a bit strong and dominant. And it's able to exercise an influence over the new nature. So if we're watching stuff on TV that we shouldn't watch, or going onto the internet, or dreaming dreams about the new computer we want, or the car, or the new bathroom suite, or the new kitchen, or whatever it is, if, if that's the focus of our attention, then the old nature is getting stronger, and the new nature is getting weaker. So what we have to do is to focus on the new nature. So that we're building it up. And how do we focus on the new nature? Well, we read this in in Matthew's Gospel. We're told man doesn't live by bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. So we need bread to to live, to get strength. So which bread are we going to eat? The bread that's found in the Word of God. Isn't that right? Because that's what strengthens us. That's where we meet Jesus. The Word of God. I just think it's absolutely wonderful that James, in writing about temptation, immediately goes on to talk about how good God is and the goodness of God. And maybe your experience is like that of the psalmist, because the psalmist would shout to God, God, are you even awake? Do you know that I'm struggling, God? Of course he knows. But sometimes we feel that we're totally on our own. But we're not. We're not. His ways are perfect. His will is perfect. And he's altogether good. Good to know that, isn't it? It really is. Well, I think we should pray for each other because we all have our struggles. And the struggles are part of what stretches us and makes us grow. And we sometimes wonder, yes, I know the Bible says all things work together for good, but I'm at a loss to understand how that struggle might work together for good but his ways are perfect his will is perfect his word is perfect he is perfect he's altogether good so let's pray Father thank you so very much That knowing that you are perfect and altogether good, not some of the time, but all of the time, allows us to bring the shortfall in our understanding and just lay it before you. You know, O Lord, that when we are confused, the big temptation is to focus on the confusion. But that leads us to doubt our beliefs. And, O God... We need to believe our beliefs and doubt our doubts. And we thank you that 
Paul tells us in Philippians, whatever is noble, whatever is good, think on these things. And so we pray that you'd help us to do that. We pray that you'd help us always, when temptation comes knocking, to ask Jesus to answer the door. And we thank you, O Lord, that your goodness is upon us every single day. And maybe there's somebody struggling here this morning. In your own gentle and lovely way, we pray that you draw alongside and minister very tenderly. And bring great encouragement. Thank you, Lord, that you don't change. So pour out a blessing upon us. Help us to keep going. Trusting you. Leaning upon you. Getting to know you better, Lord. We pray that you might have more of us tomorrow than you have today. We ask these things as we commit one another into your care in the precious and wonderful name of the Lord Jesus. Amen. Amen.